and welcome to One to Grow On, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts ourselves and our world. I'm Hallie Casey, and I studied and work in agriculture. And I'm Chris Casey, Hallie's dad. And to quote Admiral Stockdale, who am I? Why am I here? <laughs> I don't know. This week, extensions. <laughs> So, why are we talking about hair extensions? No, not hair extensions. Not hair extensions. Well, then what else are we talking about? So, extension is what I do for a living. Okay. Do you know what I do? I, I really don't. I really don't. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could um, say you teach people how to garden, but that's yeah. not right. That's right? I mean, that's pretty close. That is honestly closer than... I could ever describe what you do for a living or have ever done for pretty much my whole life. Okay. Go me. I don't know. It's computer stuff, right? I'm a web developer. I'm a programmer. Okay. 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 I don't really know what that means, though. Just like you don't really know what extension means. Like, I tell you, oh, I'm an extension manager. Oh, okay. Sure. I make web apps. Well, I teach people how to garden. Okay. There you go. So, extension is basically the practice of training farmers in informal settings. So I, my undergraduate degree was basically designed for farmers, but extension is education outside of those formal classroom settings. So it can include a lot of different things. This has been an idea for a long, long time. We're going to talk a lot about extension in the context of the U.S. for this episode, but I want to acknowledge, like, the U.S. did not invent extension. This was happening in China for, like, thousands of years. This happened in um, Ireland fairly recently in the 1800s before the U.S. started doing it in modern day. This this has been a thing in a lot of different civilizations and a lot of different cultures. Like, people... People want farmers to do do well so that they have more and better food. Makes sense. And so it's just a, a resource for them to learn about their, their area and growing techniques and whatnot? Yeah, it can be. Um, it, it can be a resource for them to learn more about what the weather is going to be or about new technology or about different harvesting practices or different growing techniques. There's a lot of different things that you can learn. Um, Like when we were talking in the first episode about, uh, we talked a little bit about food loss, how we need to keep things cold and dry in order to preserve them more. Um, That's all stuff that people learn through extension. Like farmers learn to take the food off of the field and put it immediately in a cooler because of extension, because there's this research happening and then that information is being relayed to the farmers. Wow. I mean, when I when I want new information, I just, you know, go look at a YouTube video or, a, or read a tutorial. But I guess, you know, those things weren't around 2,000 years ago. So they had to come I up mean, with something else. That's true. But, like, those things are around today. And extension is still a thing. Um, I think extension is a really fascinating thing. So I feel like similar to public libraries, the idea of extension, if it existed in any other field or at any other, like if it was started at any other time, would seem like a wild liberal fantasy because the government is basically paying people to go out and talk to farmers and like coach them on how to run their business well and how to make sound decisions. Uh, And it's it's fascinating. And there's this huge democracy of information because Once something is researched in a university, 
if it's a land-grant university or in a university that does extension, it then has the prerogative to share that research with farmers. So there's this huge, like, democracy of information bit. There is this huge just general idea that if farmers are better educated and make better decisions, then that will affect the well-being of the entire country and the entire economy. It's a really, really interesting concept. What, what do you mean by democracy of information? So... Often when we think about research in like the ivory tower of academia, it's not entirely accessible uh, and it's not it's not something to be used always. Right. Sometimes we think about policymakers using research, but it's not usually like we don't usually take research and then directly apply it in our businesses. But with agricultural research, we are doing the research in order for it to then be applied. Like that is the reason that we research agriculture is to, you know, breed better plants or to create better techniques or to create better technology, whatever it is. We are doing it to then be applied. So extension really brings this cyclical nature where farmers will talk to extension agents who will then talk to researchers and researchers will talk to extension agents who will talk to farmers. So farmers are pushing research trends and then the research is coming back and affecting what the farmers are doing. The idea is that the research is coming directly down to the farmers. And so this information that is created and paid for by the government is then distributed to anyone who wants to access it. That's awesome. I mean, that's kind of the way it should be. Yeah, yeah. And I, r research in any form is, is often very useful, even if we can't apply whatever is being researched. But I think there's something very special about like scientists coming together and researching something for the benefit of pretty much everyone, like for the benefit of farmers and all of the people who want to eat the food that will then you know become cheaper or easier to get or whatever it is. Well, I mean, yeah, it's benefiting society is part of the function of science. At least I like to think so, you know, on top of explaining the natural world. How did it how did it get started in the U.S.? So in 1862, Congress passed the Morrill Act, M-O-R-R-I-L-L, which established land-grant colleges. So the idea of the land-grant college was basically granting a certain amount of federally controlled land to an existing or a new university who would then have the prerogative of training teachers, scientists, farmers, it was basically trying trying to create institutions that were getting out of that traditional like liberal arts idea of like philosophy and economic theory and and these more high minded studies that were happening in universities and bringing it back to what we now kind of consider STEM and applied sciences. Okay. This was largely in response to the Industrial Revolution, which was happening in parts of Europe and the U.S. We needed people who were going to invent. We needed new farmers. We needed teachers um, to, to teach these people in this emerging class. We were, not, we were no longer all yeomans farming you know, small parcels of land. People were able to move up and out into cities, and that was creating a lot more opportunity. So this act was passed in order to create these large public universities that would then train people in these new trades. 
There have been a few different periods where we've gotten new land-grant universities. So 1862 was like the first batch, and they got a lot of land. 1890 was the second batch, and that was specifically for states that used to be in the Confederacy, and they were mostly given money with the caveat that the colleges had to either serve people of color, Black folks, or there had to be a separate land-grant institution that was just for Black folks. So that's how we got a lot of the HBCUs in the South. And then in the mid-20th century, we added some in places like D.C., Hawaii, Alaska, Guam. And then in 1994 was the most recent addition of land-grant colleges where they added tribal colleges and universities, which is where I work at. I work at one of the 1994 land-grant colleges. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Now, Now I know. So did these universities not exist before then? Or uh, were they there and then they got this this land-grant thing? Yeah, so some of them did exist before and then they got designated as a land-grant and they were either granted more land or money from the federal government. Some of them, and this is true for all of the granting periods throughout time, some of them didn't exist and they like put in a application as like a potential school. And if they were granted it, then the federal government gave them money and land and then they started to establish a school after that. Cool. Yeah. Most of the land-grant colleges and universities today are public. Some of them are private. Um, MIT is a land-grant university, and it's a private university. Cornell is another example. I had no idea. Yeah. There's 106 total in the U.S. Um, Most states have one or two large land-grant colleges. So Texas has Texas A&M. New Mexico has New Mexico State University. And then most of them will also have some smaller ones as well. So like in New Mexico, there's a bunch of tribal ones because there's a lot of tribal land in New Mexico. But NMSU is kind of the, the big dog in New Mexico. And then there's these smaller ones, which technically have land grant status, but are, you know, less well known, have less money, have less land, have less resources. They're still technically land grants. But I'll kind of get in in a minute into the extension relationship with land grants. So NMSU is the main extension body in New Mexico, the state. Okay. Are most of them, uh, I guess, university? So the extension agencies are, are generally university based? Or affiliated with the university in some way? Yes. So in 1887, there was the Hatch Act, which created agricultural experiment stations associated with the existing land grants. And then in 1914, there was the Smith-Lever Act, which established the idea of cooperative extension. So cooperative extension, as codified in the 1914 Smith-Lever Act, is the idea of sharing agricultural research with farmers. Okay, just to, that's the part of where you, you disseminate all the knowledge that you've gained, or, or you make it available for anyone that wants it. Yes, yeah. And it's it's not just making it available, because we do that with pretty much all of our research. Like, you can go and, like, look up medical papers and try and read them, but it's really the idea of translating it and disseminating it and working oh. with farmers to implement it. Yeah, okay. There, so there's a little more a little more to it than just aggregating the information you put it in mm-hmm. sort of non-sciencey you know less sciencey terms and then okay and then the working with them i guess is also essential yeah for sure so traditionally the idea of cooperative extension was kind of this non-formal education for rural people surrounding agriculture uh you know and it's connecting these researchers and farmers like we've said and it's really translating 
this research into something applicable and working with farmers to figure out what is the best solution, what can you find out about this agricultural system to figure out, you know, what what is a good solution, what are the right managerial choices. Not that the extension agent is making those choices, but they're able to work with the farmer to find the correct data that can inform those choices. So maybe they do soil tests. Maybe they bring out new technology. That's traditionally what cooperative extension is. In recent years, it's kind of expanded to other things as well. Cooperative extension also does a lot of work with youth. They work with 4-H and FFA. There are also other examples like you'll have cooperative extension in cities and they'll work with kids in cities or you'll have cooperative extension at other universities that aren't like the big land-grant university. So I work at a university, and like I said before, it's a tribal university. So NMSU is the big extension university in the state, and then we, as the tribal university that's also providing extension, try to do other things. So we do, like, financial training. We do a lot of cooking demonstrations to help expand people's recipe repertoires. We do a lot of other things, and we also do some of the Things that NMSU is doing, so sometimes we can be a resource and fill in where sometimes people who are marginalized don't have access to this resource in the same way. Even though the way that it was created in the law, the idea was that it would make it available to everyone. Anyone who wanted this information would have access to cooperative extension. Sometimes that doesn't always play out. Yeah, it's. I mean, some people are harder to get to and those people often lose out. I mean, it sounds like like a big consulting firm where you just go in and help people figure out the solutions to their problems. Yeah. And honestly, I think it's so wild that this is something that the government does. Like, this does not exist in any other field. This is a huge infrastructure. This exists in every state, in most territories, but just for agriculture. Like, we don't have any kind of similar system for most other professions. And I think it's I think it's really beautiful and I think it's kind of a shame that it doesn't exist for other professions, but it's just I really think it's amazing. Well, I mean we we got to have food. We got to eat and sometimes food's hard to grow. Mm-hmm. And I, I I guess someone somewhere along the line, you know, recognized that uh in other places this has been a useful resource and and maybe we should have it here. I think I think if there was something like this in the tech industry, tech moves so fast that the government wouldn't be able to keep up and it'd be kind of a joke Mm -hmm. um but the fact that they're able to you know work with the universities doing the research and get to know the people in the area makes it makes it a pretty useful for for the agricultural industry and I, i imagine there's some agricultural companies doing some research that they don't make public but all the all the university based stuff you know, making that publicly available. That's, that's huge. That's very valuable. Yeah, it's, it's definitely really significant. And I mean, you, you do have like patent issues and you do have like some information that is not given out publicly if it's done by a corporation. But I think that for the most part, whenever you tell a farmer like, oh, here's something to do for your field, or even if I tell a gardener this, like there is mountains and mountains of government publications that are specifically tailored to, you know, gardeners, to backyard gardeners on why is it important to do this or why is it important to do that or what is this compost made of? What is this fertilizer made of? What? How do these pesticides react 
to insects' bodies. Like, that information, it feels like, is more available because you have this extension machine that's really tasked with making it understandable. Well, speaking of why we do the things that we do and and why do things work, why do we take breaks? I don't know, but we do it. So we can we can tell you to do certain things. And I think this is a good time for one. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. I hope you had a good holiday or a good Thursday if you're outside of the States. Hallie, did you have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Pretty good. Oh, man. My Thanksgiving was great. I don't know about yours. <laughs> well, I'm you had your sure. favorite daughter home, so. Uh, yeah. Well, I had both of my favorite daughters home. So, you know. <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah. Lindsay is a Starfruit patron. So thank you, Lindsay, very much for your support. And if you like the show, uh, share us on social media. If one episode was particularly interesting to you, maybe pick that one and say, hey, I learned... This cool fact. You can also learn this cool fact from this cool podcast. Please listen to it. Uh, It would mean a lot to us. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot, everyone. And back to the episode. Back to the episode. So I was trying to think of ideas of effective extension so I could kind of like tout them and, and tell you about them as like, this is why it's so important and why it can do so much good and why it's so effective. But there aren't really like clear stories because it's just something that is so huge and it's something that our agricultural system has not really been without for so long. So there's like so many small stories of success, but there's not really like a, oh, I can point to this and tell you that for sure extension made this possible. But I think that's kind of indicative of the idea of an applied science, right? It's it's applied. It is the idea of working through something. And so it's, yeah, it's it's just something that I... I could not I couldn't find anything that I could point to about it, but it's really great. We don't have any data or stories, but we believe you. <laughs> no, that's fair. I think that's fair. I think that extension has been something that's so prevalent across history and it, it became a really huge deal in like the early twentieth century in the US and then it expanded across the world to countries where they didn't really have extension set up before. And part of that is because of like American neocolonial policies, but not all of it. Some of it is just that they saw what extension was doing in the U.S. and thought it was a good idea and decided to also implement it in their country. So that's not data, but that's countrywide anecdotes, I guess. I think the education of farmers is a good value to have. And from that standpoint, it seems great. Yeah, I couldn't find any info on how actually valuable it is. But trust me when I say it's very important. (laughs) Well, I mean, when you do your workshops and stuff, people people leave with, you know, knowledge and they they really appreciate that from what I've heard. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, I think that the workshops I do are a little bit different because when we think about extension, whether it's in the U.S. context or in developing countries, which is the other context I know them in, I don't know a lot about other developed countries' extension systems, but we often think about growing value and increasing economic viability of a certain firm, right? With my workshops and what I'm doing, that's not really what I'm doing. 
because I'm working with a population that is not able to farm or ranch in the same way. There are people who still do it in the area that I work, but for the most part, this isn't an option because of like historical injustices and oppression that has happened over years and because of economic forces and because of a couple of other reasons I'm sure that I don't know all of. So I'm not strictly working to improve the economic viability of a firm or to improve the environmental sustainability of a firm, whatever it is that an extension agent is probably working with a farmer to achieve. Instead, what I am doing is, and this is, I think, one of the interesting things about extension is you you see these kind of alternative programs popping up that are still in the same model. But what I am more doing is working with individual gardeners, for the most part, some small-scale farmers, to help them feel like they are connected to their history. Now, I don't know anything about their history. I don't know really much about their religion or culture, but... I come in and I bring science and I bring knowledge and I hear what people are telling me, which is that we can't grow the same way we used to because, you know, the rains don't come at the same time because it's getting hotter every summer. You know, the climate is changing. They're facing a lot of pollution. And so I come in with the science and say, here are some new solutions that might help you to grow the way that your ancestors did or to, you know, achieve whatever this goal is. Some people, it's going back to their roots. Some people, it's doing religious practices with food or plant products that they've grown. Some people, it's, I want cheaper access to healthier foods. Sometimes it's, I need a good hobby. It's not always that, but for the most part, what I'm seeing and what the federal government is paying me to do, which is wild, is working with people who want to get back to their roots into their religion into their culture of growing dang well now we know what you do <laughs> that's pretty great and and kind of deep yeah it's it's a good job it's really really neat that i get to do this so we we talked about you know we talked a lot about where this came from and sort of where it is now and what you do mm-hmm. um but but what about you know where is it going uh, is this going to be around forever uh, is there anything that needs to change? I don't know. It's a perfect system, right? <laughs> it's not a perfect system, but I think that the traditional model of cooperative extension where you have an extension agent goes out and works with farmers is is fairly status quo. I don't envision that changing. But what I do see changing and what you see a lot in all of agriculture, including extension, is you have less farmers. Farmers are getting older. You have fewer people coming in. So there's a lot more extension programs in the U.S. that are focused on recruiting youth, recruiting other people who are not old white men to come and farm, uh, whether it's, you know, working in inner cities, if whether it's working with folks who are recent veterans, whether it's working with people who have been incarcerated. There's a lot of programs in extension programs now that are that are just focused on outreach and recruiting into the agricultural industry because we just don't have the same number of growers that we used to and that will become an issue. So that's in the US. Part of my master's program talked a lot about extension in developing countries. So I can kind of talk a little bit about where that is at. Okay, so I guess I'll go back. Okay, so in the 1950s, the World Bank and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, 
created these things called structural adjustment programs. And they start, were started in the 1950s, but they really had a big heyday in the 1980s. And they're basically these huge loans that these intergovernmental organizations would offer. It was to countries that they thought the economy was unstable. And so they offered these huge loans with some conditions attached. So those conditions were primarily towards deregulation and privatization. So the IMF and the World Bank really wanted to push these countries towards what they thought of as like the free market ideal. So they often went into countries that, you know, they thought were unstable and needed a lot more money. And they would say, you can have this money if you privatize and deregulate. So that meant that a lot of developing countries had to cut their extension programs. Oh, wow. Mean old bank. <laughs> Do we know if that was uh, a problem for, you know, farmers looking for, for information or? Yeah, so it, it led to kind of this hole in farmer education and governments could not fill that hole anymore because they still had these tags associated with this big IMF loan or the World Bank loan. So corporations moved in, which... Which was, there are pros and cons. Um, privatized extension, we, we have privatized extension in the U.S. You know, you mentioned earlier, like, extension is pretty much like a consultant. So sometimes farmers will pay consultants to come out and do similar work to extension agents, but maybe they're more highly trained or they have additional information that extension agents might not have. There, there could be different reasons that farmers would want to hire a private consultant, but it's a little bit different if you're opting into private extension versus it fits your only options. So there's research currently being done on how privatized extension works and what the effects can be. In most countries, privatized extension is not the only thing, but there are definitely places where it is the majority of what farmers are offered. So sometimes even if it's not government extension, they'll get NGO extension, which is still public, or they'll get extension from U.S. universities, which is still public. But there are definitely places where corporations offer a lot of advice to farmers there can be ways where it works well. Like, for example, if a farmer has a contract with a sugar exporter, the, the exporter will have interest in making sure that that farmer grows good quality sugar. Maybe they want, you know, as much sugar from one farmer as possible. So they will try and advise the farmer positively if they have matching interests. There are some other ways where they might not have matching interests, though. If a firm really wanted to sell certain seeds... So they really, really sold the farmer and said, no, you got to have these seeds. You'll get four times as much. You will have to take out a small loan from us that you can then pay back very easily, but you'll make a lot of money on these new seeds. And then the farmer is left with debt, which can you know turn into more debt and can be cyclical and can turn out to be a big issue and has been a big issue for a lot of farmers. Yeah, there's a lot of trade-offs when it comes to privatized extension. It could be better in that maybe corporations are more flexible and they're better able to interact with farmers individually and engage with farmers and whatever the, the differences in the farmer's needs or wants are. But you might also have a corporation who doesn't want to go super far out. So you'll have farmers that are excluded out on the fringes or who are super rural. Whereas ideally, if you had a government or public extension system that was operating correctly, you would have an extension agent dedicated to people who are further out. And so they would still be able to get that information. 
And you also, there are some extension services, like, for example, the ones I'm currently offering that would not be offered if extension was just privatized. There's not a lot of people who are talking about, like, only privatizing extension and never having a public extension system again. But these are kind of some things to think about. There's a lot of extension programs, especially in developing countries that are like gender sensitive training or, you know, nutrition training. These things, there's there's not a huge capitalistic incentive for businesses, for firms to go in and offer this. It makes sense for governments to, if their prerogative is to increase diversity in farming or increase the number of farmers or the health of babies, you know, whatever it is, these aren't really things that have a monetary value that a firm can cash in on by coming in and advising farmers. Well, I feel like today's takeaway, something that we keep coming back to, is uh, the idea of democracy of information. Making this information as accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah, I think it's a super radical idea. Um, and, and having a governmental arm that can just support people's ability to grow for themselves, even if it's not necessarily productive, I think is amazing. That idea of sovereignty of a person's ability to grow food. And I think that the the government supporting that idea is just so poetic and so incredible and mm, mm, so good. So good. <laughs> how, how good? How good? So good. So good. It's funny to think of it as a radical idea that started, you know, it's been around for thousands of years, but we keep doing it, and well, let's keep on keeping on. I know. No, I, I honestly, I think extension. I compared it earlier to public libraries, but I think there is a good comparison there, because public libraries are similarly about the democracy of information, about information being available to anyone, regardless of their socioeconomic status. It's, it's supposed to be open to everyone. Is the idea behind it. And I think that that idea is similarly radical for the same reason. You know, in in previous episodes, I've said, wow, the more you know. But this really is about the more you know. (laughs) The more everyone can know. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. That does it for this episode. Join us again in a couple of weeks when we talk about, I don't know what, but I bet it'll be great and you'll love it. (laughs) Tell your friends and your family. Yep. And random people on the street. And your dog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Want to Grow On. If you would like to support the show, you can rate and review us on iTunes or consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash one to grow on pod. If you'd like to connect with us, find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or at our website at one to grow on This show is hosted by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. It's produced by Catherine RJ and Hallie Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free, and our show art is by Mariah Coley. Be sure to check out the next episode in two weeks. Until then, keep on growing. Bye, everybody.